Greetings, Wargamers. We're your hosts, Trevor, Jay, Josh, and this is Shannon Attack. Attack. is sponsored by Discount Games Incorporated. Discount Games Incorporated specializes in customer service, low prices, and prompt shipping. You can find our web store at www.discountgamesinc.com. Chain Attack. I'm your host, Trevor, and uh, I, I play Race for the Galaxy because it's amazing. I'm I'm Jay, and uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm like Trevor. I, I play Race for the Galaxy because it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever. I'm Josh, and I'm kissing it up in a different way, which is to say that I played Roll Through the Ages while my wife was in labor with my fourth child. So that was how committed I was. <laughs> <laughs> well... I'm Tom Lehman, and I'm happy to be uh, here tonight, and uh, I'm glad it's sound only because I'm blushing right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Tom, you're, you're a, a game designer, and you, you've created some games that are very beloved by the, the co-hosts of Chain Attack, um, but to start off, why don't you uh, introduce yourself a little bit and... Uh, Tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, I grew up overseas, and we didn't have a lot of games. So I started out fairly early inventing my own. And then in the mid-'80s, I was working for Oracle. I was one of the first 50 people at Oracle, and that gave me the uh, uh, money to be foolish and start my (laughs) own game publishing company, which I did in the 90s. And, um, that worked reasonably well. And then magic came along and destroyed our business. Um, and I can talk about that if you want to. And, uh, so I became an independent freelance designer and I've been, uh, full time at it since 2007, uh, which is when Race for the Galaxy came out. And I'm probably best known these days for, Race and its various spin-offs, Jump Drive, Roll for the Galaxy, New Frontiers. And for my work on the Pandemic series with the designer Matt Leacock, I'm the co-author of three of the, of the three expansions to Pandemic. Um, and it's also with Matt that we did, uh, Roll Through the Ages, The Iron Age. Uh, uh, then more recently, I designed Raise Arcana, which has won several awards this year. And uh, those are probably the games I'm most known for in the slightly, I don't know whether it's nerdy or niche area. I'm also known for a game called 1846, an 18xx <laughs> game, uh, which uh, GMT used to kick off their 18 XX line, and that's another thing that I've been involved in. 
That is okay, niche so, of niche. Okay, so I have to know, when did the destruction of your original game company happen? And what year was that? It was 1995. And, and did the destruction happen? Because, I mean, a lot of your early games were sort of in the card game-ish category, or? No, uh, my first game was actually something called Fast Food Franchise. And it was a board game. It got a nice review in, in Games Magazine. And it was, and many people have described it as Monopoly done right. Now, there are many people who think Monopoly is, you know, a horrible game. Um, but what I did was I crossed sort of Monopoly and Acquire. And I made it such that the game ends in 45 minutes. And so um, that was my very first game. Uh, we were board games. One of them, uh, Suzerain, was sort of a card game, board game hybrid. But um, we had started out the company. It was myself, and I had a partner company called Tim Jim that uh, had done Outpost, and we joined forces so that we could get distributors to carry our line. And we had gotten to the point where we were cash flow positive. Um, but then Magic came along, and um, I actually, we had the booth next to Magic, at <laughs> okay, and um, when the, when it first came out, and the first day they had no traffic at their booth, and you know we're sitting and we're having some traffic at our booth, and so across the little divider, you know we're like, so what is this? And we start playing magic, and then the explosion happened, and you couldn't even see our <laughs> booth due to all the people, you know, in front of of the wizards' booth. And uh, next year, of course, they had a huge pavilion at Gen Con, and, you know, we were off in some little corner. But the main problem was that all the retailers stopped reordering games. We had been getting to the point where they were ordering, you know, 500 games a year of each of our titles. And then suddenly they just stopped because they were all hoarding their cash to buy magic cards because that was where the money was. And so we went from being cash flow positive to cash flow negative. However, you know, in this sort of, you know, Richard Garfield takes and Richard Garfield gives, um, Mm -hmm. was a fan of fast food franchise. And uh, he actually offered me a job at Wizards. This is, uh, you know, right around the time of Arabian Nights. And, uh, you know, he took me around the offices and showed you know, me to people and said, this is the designer fast food franchise. And they'd all look at Richard and go, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, you look at your life and you go, huh. And I sometimes wonder what would have happened had I taken Richard's offer and gone and joined Wizards R&D instead of saying, no, no, I have my own company and I will continue on my own, right? You know, that was one of those big decisions. Those that I pivot could, points, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you look back and you go, well, you know, uh, things might have been better in some dimensions and worse in others. Uh, Richard and I are still friends. Uh, we're currently having a debate on a couple topics by email. And, uh, you know, I think we've both had a lot of success. So, you know, no hard feelings on my side. Oh, that's awesome. Well, yes, tell him that we've been enjoying Bunny Kingdom at the Wheeler household. So he did a good job there. There you are. <laughs> so I, um, 
I was in I was in high school when um, when Magic were released, and I, I started playing it towards the end of Arabian Nights, and I uh, had a part-time job mostly to support my Magic habit, and and I uh, right now my my occupation is that I I own a game store, mm-hmm. um, and like just the way that magic the way that magic has changed in, in all these years is is very interesting like I, I remember like this was obviously pre-internet and everything sold at, at like full retail and it, it would come in stock and immediately sell out and it was just like this super hard commodity to get and now um like you see people selling boxes of magic at like you know just a few dollars above cost and they're selling, trying to sell it like a really big volume. And it's, it's just kind of fascinating how uh, the industry has had all these various evolutions over all these years. Yeah. I mean, I'm trained as an economist. Okay. Sort of academic backgrounds. And so I'm not surprised, right? You know, things start out as a very thin market and then the price is really high, but then of course, production increases and it becomes a commodity and mm-hmm. commodities, you know, sell for just, you know, what they call normal profits in economics. So, you know, the fact that, that this has happened isn't a surprise. Yeah. Uh, Rich, well, on the, on yeah. the plus side, the opposite has happened for board games. They have come into their own over the last, well, 15 years to the point where they are people hunger for new board games now, again. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we're also in the middle of a massive production collapse of board yeah. games, right? The, at least in, in 2019, over 4,000 titles were published worldwide. That's a lot. That is a lot. That's that more lot. than any reviewer can keep up with. Um, and so, you know, there's this fear... Uh, or there was this fear in 2019 that this was unsustainable. On the other hand, the number of players playing board games is increasing. Mm. Board games is now a billion-dollar industry worldwide, and you can tell that it's real money because suddenly academics are paying attention to it. Um, you know, there's something <laughs> in them dark hills. <laughs> and um, so it's hard to tell whether what's going on with COVID-19, which is having a lot of impact on many, many industries, it's hard to tell what that will do exactly for the board game market. Um, you know, it's uh, certainly exposed supply chains and supply chain issues, uh, you know, in all of this, because nowadays your typical board game is made and sourced all over the world. Right. And so, for example, we had a reprint of Race for the Galaxy scheduled with our printer in Germany, which was still operating because Germany had responded really quickly to COVID-19. But they couldn't print it because the paper that they used, right, and we wanted the same paper so that the cards would feel the same, uh, comes from northern Italy. And they were completely locked down with COVID-19. Holy cow. Right. Then, you know, with Raise Arcana, we, the first expansion came out at the very end of last year. 
and we had a reprint scheduled and that and it's made in China and so it was totally disrupted for four months. And, you know, these are fairly minor things in, in the larger scheme, but it, you know, suddenly we didn't worry that our printer gets their paper from Italy and it's suddenly, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not even something that you would know or pay attention to, right? I wouldn't think right. so. Yeah. Although, you know, I've learned a lot about printing over the years, both as a, as a publisher yeah. and working with things and, you know, you have to be really careful and pay a lot of attention to those things if you have what is sometimes called a lifestyle game, you know, like Dominion or Pandemic or something, where it's actually quite hard to get consistent printing, you know, across multiple print yeah. runs. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, sure. It takes a lot of dedication at the printer, but also... Deep within the printer is a print buyer who's, you know, looking for deals on paper and so on right. all the time. And sometimes they will substitute paper without ever telling anyone in the printing company that they're doing it. And suddenly the cards feel different or the right. color is different. And, you know, the, the printers, they, you know, it's like they do each job individually and they don't understand, you know, quite, uh, the the degree to which board gamers can get upset over <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I mean I've... that was uh, very diplomatically stated <laughs> I mean now it's true that if you really really want printing fidelity you know there are about a dozen printers worldwide who print all the world's currency but that would push the cost of a board game up to a factor of ten Right, ten times the the price a thirty dollar game would be a three hundred dollar game. Yeah, then we as board gamers would be trapped between two things that we hate. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so you know, there are printers who really understand it. The ones who do the museum reproductions of paintings, the ones who do uh, printing of of currency. And I mean, if you've ever been to a printer who does this, the whole the currency division is separate and we're talking like vault doors and all sorts of security and humidity controlled paper. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, all sorts of stuff that goes on around these things. And it really is a small number. There are like two in the United Kingdom, three in the United States, you know, and like they do printing for many, many countries. One of the ones in England does almost all the currency for the entire British Commonwealth. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely one of those behind-the-scenes things you just wouldn't normally even think about. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've as as a retailer, I've I've experienced multiple times where, um, like a game will have a release date and it ends up getting pushed because you know, the card stock was different or the card backs didn't match in the expansion or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it definitely happens a fair bit. <laughs> uh, the other thing that was interesting, you, you mentioned how many games, board games are coming out now. And as a retailer, it I've almost gotten to the point where, well, I have gotten to the point where my default position on a new board game is going to be no. And, there needs to be some reason for me to say yes, whether it's 
you know, it's going to be a hot game or it has this cool new mechanic or, you know, whatever it is. But like the vast, like there's, there's no well, game store that can possibly like be picking up all of these games. Just like there's, there's no reviewer that can be <laughs> uh, reviewing them. And so it's, it's definitely kind of a, an interesting phase of the, the board game market right now. And I, I am very interested to see what the, um, how things shake out with, the, the current pandemic with it all. Yeah. Okay, Tom, I have a quick question. Maybe it's a quick question. I'm curious, which which of your older games would you most like to see, you know, get like the restoration game style treatment or or, or, or be redone with a little bit of a modern spin? Yeah, I was talking with Rob Davio about this at one point, and I tried to give him a, you know, fair summary of what I thought the pros and cons of fast food franchise are. Okay. Because, uh, that is a game that has been suggested by other people to restoration games a fair bit. And as I was going down the pluses and minuses, he's like, you're not selling me on this, Tom. <laughs> 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 so I may not be the right person to ask these questions because I'm honest, you know? Um, let's see. I think Suzerain possibly was a game that was before its time and could be redone and might work. Um, I think, uh, Age of Exploration, despite all the history and stuff I put into it, is probably politically toxic, uh, at the moment. Um, you know, I, I mean, I really struggled with how to portray things, and I put in a large historical guide and tried to uh, give a lot of context around, you know, what was going on in the game. And so I haven't gotten a lot of negative feedback around that, but I just can't honestly recommend that to a publisher. Um, you know, some people have thought that Throne World could, you know, be done with better graphics and so on. Um I really don't spend a lot of time thinking about my older games because I have so many games I want to design. I see. <laughs> and, you know, I'm getting on. I'm, I'm past 60. And, uh, you know, I can tell I'm slowing down some. So I'm more concentrated on, you know, the really good games that I still think I have in me that I want to do. So, um, you know, that, that may be a retirement project rather than something that I seriously want to spend time thinking about. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm so, talking with one person uh, about possibly doing 2038 uh, in a modern style. That's another one of these 18xx games. It's 18xx in space. It's actually uh, 2038 Tycoons of the Asteroid Belt, right? That's right. Yeah. And and there was an expansion that we did as a print and play several years ago. I mean, we had done the work on it 20 years ago. Um, and the thought is that this could be uh, done and put on Kickstarter and so on. And, you know, because 18xx is becoming a more viable niche as opposed to just a hobbyist uh, area of the industry. So that's one of my older games that might actually make it out. So I, I know that you said that you don't necessarily like to dwell on your your past games, but um, I guess a, a little bit different spin on Josh's question is: Is there any game that um, I you know I, 
I, I'm assuming that as a game designer, uh, there's a little bit of an element of you, you create something and you put it out in the world and you don't necessarily know what's going to like really take off and, and what things aren't going to gain as much attention. Um, and is there, is there any game that you've done where you, you made it and you, you just felt like afterwards it didn't get quite as much attention as um, you, you thought that it merited? Merit is a strong word. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Respected, maybe, or hoped for. I mean, it's definitely true that you never know whether a game is going to be a hit, right? You yeah. can sometimes suspect it, right? If mm-hmm. during playtesting, people are consistently asking to play a game, right? Because often I'm playtesting like five games at once. Wow. But if they, if they say, you know, no, 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 I want to play that one all the time, right? This happened to Donald with Dominion. Um, you know, that, that's a sign that, okay, there's something here, something special about this game that, you know, might mean that it's going to be a big success. And with race, we could definitely feel that because, um, prior to publication, there were testers who had over 5,000 face-to-face games under their belt. Holy cow. Wow. 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 <laughs> right? You know, that, that's saying something. Not very many were in that category. I was around 3,000, but we had two testers who were above 5,000. I have done nothing with my life. I've, it's now clear to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not clear that playing 5,000 games of race will do anything for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have to share our experience when Race first came out because uh, Jay had a store and it's a, it, that um, we he bought a store copy of Race for the Galaxy. Josh and I and Jay's brother and Jay, we all met at lunchtime in his store and played that game of Race until the cards were so sticky. We met every day at lunchtime. We played the card until the cards stuck together. Because the the um, film on the outside of the car had broken broken down, and they were they were they we couldn't couldn't pull them apart basically, and so we took that copy and we kind of tossed it, and Jay bought another copy and a bunch of sleeves. We sleeved the whole thing, and then we played it. I I have no idea how many more times after that, but I mean considerably more times. Um, and as we mentioned before the show began, um, that is the single game that we have played the most times of. Out of any board game that I can think, of. and probably by a sizable margin too. Yeah, I would. I would oh say yeah. So. <laughs> well, thank you, and I'm glad that it's giving you so much enjoyment. I mean, you know, I look on Board Game Arena, and I can see there are over seven million uh, plays of Race on that forum. Oh, that is uh, amazing. Uh, the app. So you know, it it clearly hits you know a, a sweet spot. You know, I'm very lucky in that I've been involved with. You know, two, you know, in a major way with two, uh, huge franchises, you know, uh, Pandemic is a very, very large franchise. Uh, you know, more copies of it are sold than race. Um, and then I've helped Donald for a little while. I helped him on playtesting Dominion as well. Uh, uh, the sort of the middle expansions. And so, you know, when something succeeds and it becomes this sort of franchise, it's, it's very rewarding. Um, and, you know, I'm, 
I'm hoping that, you know, Raise Arcana, I'm currently working on several expansions for it, and we have some hopes that it might secede as well. It's doing very well. And, you know, when that happens, it's always a pleasure because you know that other people are taking pleasure in your game, right? I mean, when you talk about games that may or may not work, you know, it's for me a little sad when you have a game and, you know, only 2,000 copies are made and then it goes nowhere, doesn't get reprinted. And you, you know, meet someone who says, wow, I really love that game. And it's like, yeah, I wish I could give you an expansion. I know that I can't. <laughs> you know. Econom- economic says no. Yeah. Yeah, or the market says no, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One uh, of the things that that I appreciate quite a bit about Race to the Galaxy is that um, I feel like it scales really well at different player levels. Um, I I played a bunch of the game as a two-player game versus my brother. And it's really rare, in my opinion, to find a, a game that can go from, from two players up to three and four and have it be a really good two-player experience and also a really good larger game experience as, as well as Race does. And that's, that's something that um, I appreciate a lot about the design of that game. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, I... In some sense, I sometimes wonder whether Weiwa and I did too good of a job when we developed the two-player version. (laughs) Because there are a bunch of people who will only play it two-player, and I think that, you know, the four-player and the three-player experience have their own charms. But, uh, you know, there's a bunch of people for whom Race is exactly a two-player game. Interesting. Yeah, whereas I think the bluffing elements and the leaking elements of each other's calls gets magnified when it's four or five or six. Um, you know, during the development of the expansions, we often had a core group where it was five or six of us playing at a time. And that, you know, has some interesting things and some laughter when sometimes everyone picks the same exact phase and we're all like, what we thought you were going to do. <laughs> you know, and there's well at the table, and you all pick the same phase, and and you're all looking at each other, go, discarding cards because, well, you know, no one did it, a develop or settle, and you're all over your hand limit. You sort of feel a little stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truthfully, it is a different game at two player because of the the ability to basically feed yourself, where you can't necessarily do that in the four-player game, and and you need to be able to play off of the other players um, to do well. And in the three-player game, you often have to sort of suss out which way the game is going, because if two of you are, like, you know, doing military and fast tableau building, and one of you is trying to do produce-consume by yourself, you're not going to do very well most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, or vice versa, and sort of sussing out which way the game is going and being more flexible, I think, is sort of the hallmark of the three-player experience. So you've talked a little bit about the games you've developed in the past. Um, is there anything you can tell us about games you might have coming on the horizon? Um, let's see, I can talk about a few of them. So, let's see. First off is Dice Realms, which is a dice game where you have customizable dice. You can pop the faces in and out. And it's a big game um, in that uh, we're talking over 800 
uh, plastic faces. Oh, my land. Oh, wow. You know, and it's sort of Dominion style in that you have uh, uh, some set faces that are always available, and then you draw from a bag five tiles randomly, which are the new faces that are in for just that game. And there are 36 or 35 tiles in that bag. So that's a lot of different combos. And uh, I think it's going to be a good game. The scary thing is the price, where the MRSP is going to be over $100. Um, wow. Well, when you look at all the pieces, I mean, in order to have the faces and the dice work, right. we're talking like millimeter tolerances. It's very much like Lego pieces. And if you look at what a 800-piece Lego set goes for, yeah, yeah. Sure, uh, sure. it actually isn't that much more. And then when you factor in the fact that Lego you know, has huge economies of scale, large print runs or production runs, um, it actually is a pretty good price for what you're getting. But it's, you know, I'm a little I'm nervous about how the reception will actually be whether it's going to scare off people or whether people are going to really like it and feel it's worth the money. Um, but that's Dice Realms, and uh, hopefully it'll be out before the end of this year. Um, let's see. We were working on, but due to COVID, um, probably the next race expansion won't be until late next year. Um, we had been hoping it would make this year, but I don't think it's going to. You know, I would say that's a 2021 product. But that is, uh, if you've played the Xeno Invasion expansion, the race, this expansion is Xeno Counter-Strike. You know, you've been invaded, you've taken the pounding, now it's time to go back and pound them. Nice. So, you know, that's the basic idea behind that expansion. And, some people really want a longer race game. And when you play the combined invasion and counterattack, you do actually play a much longer race game. So for those people, you know, I'm finally giving them a way to have that longer game experience. For the people who want it as a quick short game, you can play it just as it is. You know, it's interesting. We're, um, I think the three of us are pretty big fans of longer games, but we, I think we probably prefer the length that <laughs> the Race for the Galaxy is at right now, rather than you mean you mean lunchtime length. <laughs> well, well, I mean we we would play you know five or six games at lunchtime, not just right, one. Right, right. I mean, if you're playing race in you know say twenty minutes, and you know Counter Strike might mean that you're playing it in forty to fifty minutes, right, for that full experience. Yeah, yeah. But if you're just playing Xeno Counter Strike. Not with the full invasion and counterattack scenario, but you're just adding the cards and playing race. It's still 20 minutes. Yeah, one of the, one of the, I, I guess another design thing that I appreciate a lot about Race for the Galaxy is that it is a game where you can play it relatively quickly, and by the time you're done, you have like the satisfaction or the fill of the experience of something that normally takes much longer to play, and I think that that's part of the enjoyment level for me as well. Sure. I mean, there's what there's a category of games that um, uh, sometimes get called super fillers, 
where you they manage to compress what is usually a, a longer experience into a very short, intense experience. And race certainly, you know, falls into that category. Mm-hmm. What, what was the name again of, of the dice game that's upcoming? Dice Realms. Dice Realms. Okay. Um, I actually one of the games that I was um, planning on mentioning during the podcast uh, that I had uh, played and enjoyed of yours is a dice game called To Court the King that you haven't mentioned yet, and it was it was quite a quite a fun game. It's it's one where you're you're rolling a bunch of dice, but you have a bunch of different dice manipulation abilities, um, and um, I guess it's a, a credit to your uh, game design that there's the depth of your library is such that you know there's one that we haven't even really touched on that that I've had a lot of enjoyment from. So yeah, right. I've played it a ton myself. Yeah, I'm. We revisited um, uh, that game in a later game with Bezier Games called Favor of the Pharaoh, and that's essentially uh, to court the king, except with uh, about you know, two and a half times as many possible cards. It uses variable setup. Mm. We're asking earlier, you know, is there a game that I think could we could have handled better? And to be honest, I think we went overboard with Favor of the Pharaoh. We put so much variety in the box, and the setup time went up. And I mm. think we could have printed things sort of double-sided and giving you, instead of 250% the variety, um, you know, about 180% of the variety. And it would have been, the setup would have been a lot crisper, and then we could have put that other variety into an expansion, and the game, I think, would have sold better and been played more. Uh, you know, there are trying to put in extra variety, thinking that that was the real selling point, but the setup time going up, you know, interfered with that. So, what I'd like to talk a little bit about your favorite games to play that um, you haven't been involved with. What are some of your favorite games to play? What are some of your favorite board games? Well, before you added that last word of board games, <laughs> okay, we can throw I, them all I, at I me. I would say that one of the things I do do and have been doing since 1976 is role playing. Um, I got into role playing as an undergraduate um, with a bunch of people who had been to the early Gen Cons and gone and played with Gary Gygax in his basement. And uh, so I've been playing role playing since, you know, now 45 years. And uh, it's something I do weekly. And I've role pl- I've been a GM. I've been a player. Um, and I enjoy role playing. It's in some sense, it's a break from being uh, a board game player and a board game designer. Although I certainly think about alternative rules and, mm-hmm. and all of that, you know, and, uh, it's hard to turn that designer brain off. <laughs> so role playing is one of the things I do. And I think it helps my game design. Um, I think you're more sensitive to uh, narrative and possible collaboration opportunities among players mm-hmm. who do role playing. I mean, it's sort of like there are prose authors, you know, novelists, short story writers who will sometimes write poetry 
and they're not necessarily good poets, but they find that, you know, writing a poem helps them as a writer. Um, but, yeah. Did, did you, um, have you ever thought about or been involved with designing um, a role-playing game at all? Yes and no. Um, I have, um, let's see, in the LARP area, I have um, co-written three LARPs and run a bunch of LARPs with the uh, Sil West, which was the spinoff from the MIT um, uh, Society for International uh, Interactive Literature. So I've been doing LARPing since so oh, the early 90s, uh, 1991, I think. And there I've done some writing. Um, so that's been the main area where I've uh, done some design work and uh, so on. Um, getting back to your question about board games, some of the board games I enjoy, uh, Terra Mystica, uh, Terraforming Mars, although I find I really only like the base set of Terraforming Mars. I've tried most of the expansions and they just, other than the, um, the, the alternate maps, they just don't seem to work for me. Mm. Um, I enjoy Pandemic. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't work on it to the extent that I do. <laughs> you know, um, let's see. What other things uh, do I play? I mean, so much of my board gaming time is spent either observing or play playtesting that I don't actually get that much of an opportunity to play games. Um, that was what convinced me years ago that I was a consumer and not a designer. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, it is sad. I know people in the board game industry who used to love board games, used to love playing games. And they've gotten burned out, you know, the, you know, and for some people, you're very smart. You're very wise to recognize that, oh, no, no, this is something I want to do as a hobby, not as a profession. Right. So out of curiosity, what, what are, uh, what of the role playing games, Tom, what are, what are your favorites or, or what have you played the most? Well, let's see. The, probably the thing I GM'd the longest was Call of Cthulhu. Nice. I, I modified the sanity rules a bit, and I ran a 10-year campaign. Wow. Of <laughs> and uh, and it it worked well. And unlike many campaigns, it actually came to an end, right? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, a big climactic, you know, three different stories all colliding in this big climactic scene at the Great Pyramids, and my players planned for six months before we ran the finale. <laughs> and I was not allowed to attend the meetings. <laughs> they had separate meetings and, you know, they all, you know, huddled together and figured out strategies <laughs> they were going to do. And then we ran the finale over a long weekend where at the end of Saturday, they were like convinced that, you know, they were going to die. And by the end of Sunday, they had triumphed. And then... <laughs> You know, Monday we went out because we scheduled this for a three-day weekend. We went out and had a meal, and I told them the secrets behind the, you know, what had been going on. Right. And so that was very satisfying to, you know, I had seven players and to run for ten years with seven wow. players and to bring it to a a proper climax and and was, you know, a definitely felt 
like a strong achievement because so many role-playing games tend to peter out when real life intrudes and people move away or go off right. the or whatever. Um, I've run um, Legends of the Five Rings, uh, the first edition, uh, for about five years, and currently, with a different game master, uh, that's what we're currently playing. We've done lots of D&D 3.5, we've done Star Wars, we've, um, we've done, I mean, in, in my group that I'm in, four of the five players are uh, game masters, and three of us will do longer sort of things, and one likes to do little one-shots, and then the fifth player just wants to be a player. She's nice. trying She's tried being a game master, and it's not her thing. Right. But one of the great advantages of that is that we don't suffer from GM burnout as much because if our primary GM is like, okay, I'm done with this part, and then one of us other GMs will step up either to do some one-shots or to take over for a year and do a story. And we had uh, one of our GMs... uh Trisha ran a Nephilim campaign, you know, with Enoch and the the Gnostic Bibles. Okay. And we were, you know, sort of investigators in the occult. And we did that for nine months. And, you know, it was a lot of fun and a nice change of pace. On the crunchier side, we've done a fair bit of champions. So, you know, in sort of a sort of X-Men sort of setting, you know all mutants sort of thing. So a variety of different systems, different, you know, genres. You know, for the one-shots, we've explored Fate. Uh, we've done, you know, a number of, of various systems just for short little see what the system's like. So this is this will be a, a good segue um, to another topic. We had... Generally, we um, generally we don't have famous game designers on, and so we will uh, <laughs> grade various things that that geekery that we're interested in. Um, and we had you had mentioned that there were some uh, role playing shows that that you had a lot of enjoyment of, and so we were hoping that you could uh, share some information about those and what what about them that you love. Well, I mean, for me, it's it's amazing to see how uh, D&D, which used to be, you know, viewed as sort of the ultimate nerdy thing, you know, uh, teenage loser boys in the basement somewhere, has become uh, much more mainstream. And part of it, you know, is, is shows like um, uh, Stranger Things, right? But some of it is also these watching D&D with shows like Critical Role or Relics and Rarities. Rarities and Relics, one of those two. And uh, during this lockdown period, since I live by myself, uh, I've been watching some of those as a sort of thing to do when I'm not working and so on. And uh, to me, just watching them uh, is right there a sense of, wow, you know, 50 years ago, I never imagined this would be going on. <laughs> and 
I think what's interesting about Critical Role, Critical Role is very much the classic sort of D&D game, you know, heroic fantasy, save the world, you know, um, a lot of uh, emphasis on combat as well as social interaction. But, you know, it's this, it's definitely in this heroic vein, you know, the sort of the mainstream D&D approach. What I found interesting about Relics and Rarities was that, let me give you an analogy. In mysteries, there's like a lot of, you know, mystery novels. There's a lot of different styles. There's sort of the, you know, um, hard-boiled, you know, Dashiell Hammett, Maltese Falcon, sort of Sam Spade, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler type of mystery. But then there's also what's often termed the cozy mysteries, you know, the Agatha Christie, Miss Marple sort of mysteries. <laughs> okay. And relics and rarities, you know, came across and feel totally different tonally than um, uh, Critical Role in that it's set in this curiosity shop and every one of the actors, you know, playing a character gets to pick an item, which is a small magic item, to possibly help them on this week's mission. And it has this very cozy feel. And I think it's great. It, it illustrates, in some sense, the breadth, you know, of the medium, that you can tell very different styles of stories. You can do something where the players are driving the action, or you can do something that's more mission-oriented. You can do something that's, you know, heroic, large-scale. You can do something that's cozier and small-scale. And to me, seeing both of these shows doing well, you know, just warms my heart. Um, So I, I have a question for you. Um, I've tried watching these shows, and they've never really rung with me. They've not been something that I've um, become interested in. And I would say that um, one of the things, and I'm not the only one that has this complaint. I've seen it other places. Um, but that these shows, both of them, um, sort of set unrealistic expectations for the regular player because we don't sit down at a table of professional voice actors to play our D&D campaign. So what would you say to that um, criticism? Well, I can see that it maybe places extra pressure on the game masters, right? You know, particularly if you're a novice game master, you know, you're fumbling with, you know, trying to figure out what makes a good story and how how much, how to get participation. And if the players are sort of, you know, taking this role, taking this sort of position of, well, you're supposed to wow me, that's tough for the GM, right? It really is. You know, the story, when, when role-playing works, it's because of the collaboration between the players and the GM, and the players sort of have to bring to the table as much as the GM. And so I think... Yes, there's something to this in that it's placing a lot of pressure on the on the game masters. That being said, you know, there are runs of critical role where they are just flailing. They don't have a plan. (laughs) You know, and 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 Matthew Mercer is one of these more sandboxy GMs where he's gonna let the players, you know, figure it out. 
and you know you're watching it and you're watching these players flail and you go yep i or <laughs> and and then you know they don't look like professional voice actors so much as yep they are players who have <laughs> lost the plot or you know they didn't pick up on that hit from the gm or they just don't know where they are going here and then i suddenly don't feel like you know, uh, we're doing so bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, I do it, feel like it's a great point that if a player only takes away from those shows that their GM should be doing better, that they're really missing the effort that the players make. I mean, some of my favorite moments, especially in the second run of, of Critical Role with the Mighty Nine, mm-hmm. were you know very player driven. Um, oh yeah, you know, um, and some of the players are really good in ways that are unobtrusive um sam regal for example you know it's his outrageous things that get all the attention but if right him play he's actually paying attention to the game mechanics you know a lot right you know he'll occasionally you know, go you know shouldn't we be doing something about this you know he's right. hacking the plot He's aware what's going on. He'll look up a rule when other people are talking and then be ready with what he's going to try. Um, you know, and people only focus on sort of the outrageous things he's doing, but he's actually, you know, as a player, really helping the game. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Sort of subtle ways. I think Ian, I think Ian should give a masterclass on describing spellcasting. Yep. <laughs> As someone who's normally the GM in my groups, um, I certainly can appreciate the time when you bring a really simple puzzle or simple uh, quandary to the party, thinking, oh, they're going to run roughshod over this in five seconds, only to have them uh, sit and stare at it like (laughs) a bunch of monkeys trying to figure out how to open a door uh, for, you know, multiple hours on Multiple sessions. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the whole door thing became a, a running gag in Critical Role, where, you know, doors were their, the thing that constantly defeated them. <laughs> um, but, I mean, as, you know, a game master, I'm very impressed by Deborah Ann Wall, in, uh, who's the game master for Relics and Rarities, because she is, you know, doing a lot of conveying a tone because. Her, her shows are, are not three hour segments. They're one hour, you know, self-contained missions. And she is doing a lot to portray and convey different tones in the different missions. She is totally on top of the rules. Um, you know, she is a very, very good GM, as is Matthew Mercer. You know, those of us who have GMs, you know, can, I think, really appreciate just how much they're both doing in very different ways. So, you know, I've enjoyed both, and part of my head is sort of as the GM going, oh, that's nice, or, oh, that might be worth, you know, incorporating into my GM style. Um, and, you know, I just love the fact that these sort of shows are around, and I love the fact that now... There are these live benefits that are sometimes yeah. done adventures. And I think that's great, you know, that you can do something for charity and amuse an audience of several hundred people in, in an auditorium. You know, I think that's wonderful. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you're you're older than we are, but we're certainly old enough to appreciate how far it's come. When I was 13 and first started playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons, um, you know, it was not something that I told my parents about. It's not something that I told my friends about unless they were in the know, because I was afraid of how they would view it. And um, things have changed significantly. I would have never, ever, if you told me that there was two, uh, even more, I guess, if you there's a few more I can think of. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few others. Multiple um, shows based on live D&D sessions that were extremely popular. And even within the greater pop culture zeitgeist, if you told me that was ever going to happen in my lifetime when I was a kid, I would have told you you were crazy. There's no way that would ever happen. <laughs> yes, what? both my 17-year-old and I are fairly rabid critters, as they call fans of critical race. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a pretty fun thing to share as a father-daughter. Yeah, that's that's neat. I mean, you know, something that uh, a friend of mine told me is that he played World of Warcraft which is, you know, a different sort of uh, role-playing experience. He right. played with his daughter, and they would only do duo adventures together. And, you know, for them, that was a huge bonding thing, and they continued to do that even when she went off to college. <laughs> That's awesome. Real, real quick, one comparison or analogy that I kind of have about the um, getting kind of unrealistic expectations from watching these shows is that it, it in some ways it kind of feels like you know when I watch the NBA um, it's enter- it's entertaining it's enjoyable to watch but I don't have the expectation that I'm going <laughs> to be able to go out onto the court and be Michael Jordan um, but I still go out and play basketball because it's fun to play basketball. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Yeah. And yes, you have several things working against you for the Michael Jordan potential. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I have I I have several friends that they they actually I I never would have expected this. I guess kind of referencing to what Trevor said, but they became fans of role playing because of these shows, and mm-hmm. they started watching these shows before they ever role played and. These were their gateway into role-playing, and there were wow, a, a lot of them who um, had had a fair bit of anxiety when it came time to play their first role-playing game because it's they've only experienced through watching you know NBA uh, oh, shows. Oh man, but. they would be in for a shock at my table. Holy cow, <laughs> so far away from that. Jeez. But, but I mentioned my one of our players, GMs in our, in our group, Trisha. She has often worked with uh, people who've never role played before and running one shots to get them mm. used to role playing. And she has spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about how to help people design characters, how to help people get into role playing. And you know, she's done little presentations on it. She's done it at various work events and, and uh, uh, you know, sort of morale building functions and stuff like that. And it is an art getting people to relax enough to do it. I mean, one of the things is the first time someone goes from third person to first person, 
as they describe what their character is doing. You know, that to me is always one of those markers of, okay, now they're getting into it. All right. Well, um, we've gone a little bit over, but that's, that's okay because you've, you've been a, a, an amazing guest and, and been a lot of fun to chat with. Well, thank um, you for having me. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed chatting with you three. Thank you very much. Um, uh, before we go, is there anything that you'd like to say or anything you would uh, like to plug or you know, et cetera? No, not really. Um, you know, I, I want to, we're still under lockdown here in, in Northern California, and I would like everyone to be as safe as they can uh, and to get through this time. And if listening to podcasts help, I'm more than happy. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, so this is this is going to be our, our main episode of the, the podcast on our bonus episode on Patreon. Um, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about Race for the Galaxy. Um, and so you can subscribe there and listen to that. Um, and then, as always, you can check out DiscountGamesInc.com for your gaming supplies and use on minis for your accessories. Uh, so, Tom, uh, again, thank you very much for uh, creating this time and, and for being such a great guest. Thank you for having me. Good night. Yep. Have a good night, everyone.